You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestoakville.ca. So Father, what a privilege it is to be able to gather here today and to hear testimonies of new life in Christ. So awesome. God, we thank you so much that you are here with us, among us right now. God, we pray, we pray that you would be working in our hearts even right at this moment, God, softening our hearts, preparing us to receive. And God, would you please exalt yourself today? Would you please work in our hearts all that you want to accomplish for your glory and for our joy in you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Well, good morning, Harvest. My name's Nathan. I'm one of the biblical counselors here on staff, and I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. Hope you're excited. You excited? Excited? All right. All right. Yes. All right. It's great. Well, please go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. And as you're turning there, I'd like to go somewhere else in the Bible, a place like no other, a place where we see saints that are living out these radically obedient lives. A place where we see these saints who are so focused on living to please the Lord. Let me give you a couple of examples. We see a man who is very well established in his town and God calls him to leave, to leave everything and go not to necessarily a location but a direction, just go in that direction. And he does. And then we see a man who has everything, everything that he could ever want in the world. He has all the money and all the treasure and all the fame and all the status and all the power and every sinful indulgence his flesh could ever want. He has it all. And God calls him to leave it all and to trade it all in for suffering. And he does. And then we see these saints who are being tortured because they will not deny Christ. We see saints who are being imprisoned and stoned to death and sawn in half. Now, where does that kind of motivation for radical obedience to God come from? What motivates people to live like that? And maybe you've guessed where these saints are from. They're from Hebrews chapter 11. And so what what would be the thread that that would kind of weave and connect all of these saints together in Hebrews chapter 11? What is the power behind all of that obedience? And here it is, here it is. It's faith. Faith. By faith they obeyed. By faith, by faith, by faith they obeyed. And here's the question for us. Could we have a faith like that? Could we here in this church have a faith that produces such a radical obedience to God? A faith that not only produces in us a passion to please the Lord, but also power 
the power that's necessary to please the Lord. Could we have faith like that? And of course, the answer is yes. yes. By God's grace, by God's grace, we too could have faith that produces radical obedience in our lives, which leads to our first point. You can jot this down. You can jot this down. Faith produces passion to please the Lord. I must have faith. Faith produces passion to please the Lord. I must have faith. Again, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse Nine. So please have, have, have a look at that verse. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So Paul is saying, regardless of where I am, if I'm in heaven, if I'm at home with the Lord, or if I'm on the earth, he says our aim is going to be the same in both places. It's going to be to please the Lord. This is his mission, his purpose, his ambition. It's to please the Lord. And so where did Paul's passion to please the Lord come from? Well, it came from faith. Paul had faith. Well, how do we know Paul had faith? Well, have a look at verse 7. Verse 7. He says this. He says, we walk by faith and not by sight. See, Paul had a faith that produced in him a passion to please the Lord. But what is faith? What is faith? And you can jot this down. Here's a definition of faith. It's kind of lengthy, so we'll go through it a couple times, okay? This is faith. Faith is coming to Jesus and believing. That's the, the first essential nature of saving faith. It's coming to Jesus and believing who he is, what he has done, what he has said, and expecting him to keep his promises. So again, faith is coming to Jesus and believing who he is, what he has done, what he has said, and expecting him to keep his promises. That's faith. Paul had faith, but Paul didn't always have faith. You see, before Paul's conversion, he was Saul. He was Saul the Pharisee. He was Saul of Tarsus. And in fact, Saul believed that he was pleasing the Lord by persecuting the church. Acts chapter 8 says that he was, he was ravaging the church, that he was going from house to house and dragging people off and taking them to prison. But then he had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ on the Damascus road, and Jesus struck him down and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, why are you persecuting me? You see, the very thing that Saul thought was pleasing to God was in fact violence against Jesus Christ himself. And when Saul realized and believed who Jesus is, that he is God. When he believed what Jesus had done, that he died on a cross to make atonement for sin, when he believed this, he was broken. He, he repented, his life changed direction. He placed his faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And he was transformed. He was literally transformed from Saul the Pharisee into Paul the Apostle. 
And Paul was so absolutely overwhelmed that Jesus Christ died to save him that he treasured Jesus more than anything. And this is really what motivated Paul more than anything else. This was at the very heart of Paul's ministry. He treasured Jesus Christ more than anything. And so he lived for Jesus Christ. Because we all live for what we treasure. If we, live, if we treasure money, then we'll live for money. If we treasure things, then we'll live for things. If we treasure vacation, then we'll live for vacation. If we treasure entertainment, we will live for entertainment. If we treasure self, we will live for self. And because Paul treasured Jesus Christ more than anything, he lived for Jesus Christ. He desired to please Jesus Christ more than anything, and the same is true for us. The more that we treasure Jesus Christ, the more that we will desire to please Jesus Christ. Have a look again at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, verse 10, for or because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, Paul didn't only believe who Jesus is or what Jesus had done. He also believed what Jesus said, that all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, including Paul. And this produced in him a reverent fear of the Lord. How do we know that? We'll have a look at verse 11. Therefore pointing back to the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You see, Paul believed with all his heart that one day he would be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. This fills him with the reverent fear of God and produced in him a passion to please the Lord. So what is this judgment seat of Christ? Well, Paul talks more about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's throw that up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 11. This is what he says. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, so what he's talking about here is works. We build on the foundation, and we're either going to build with works that please the Lord or with works that do not please the Lord. So here's the first category. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. And then notice the second, slightly more flammable. Wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, notice, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but is only through fire. 
What Paul is talking about is not a judgment of unbelievers. He's talking about a judgment of believers' works, where God himself, Jesus Christ, will give out, dispense rewards for faithfulness, not because he owes anyone anything, and not because anyone deserves anything, but rather, rather, because he delights in rewarding faithfulness. He takes pleasure in rewarding faithfulness, the very faithfulness that he enables by grace. None of us deserve anything. If there's any faithfulness in any of us, it's from God. He rewards, he delights to reward the very faithfulness that he enables and brings about. And Paul believed this. Paul believed this. And it produced in him a passion to please the Lord. But that's not all that Paul believed. He believed that after the judgment seat, he would then go to be with Jesus Christ forever in heaven, in glory, in fullness of joy and pleasure. And so he longed to be with his Savior. He longed to be with his Savior so much so that in his letter to the Philippians, he said this. He said that to him... Death is gain. Death is gain, and not in some morbid way. Paul was passionate about living to please the Lord, but to him, death was gain because his desire was to go to to be with the Lord because that was far better because Paul had faith. He had faith. He believed who Jesus is, and so he believed to go to be with Jesus in heaven is ultimate. So he didn't treasure his life. His life was not something to be guarded and protected. He viewed his life instead as something to be poured out to please the Lord because he had faith and Jesus was his treasure. Now maybe you have seen children on Christmas Eve before. Or maybe you've been a child on Christmas Eve. Hands up if you've ever been a child on Christmas Eve. Okay, great. So you are experts on children on Christmas Eve. So this, this we know, right? What are kids like on Christmas Eve? They are wild, right? They are so excited. Smile from ear to ear. Why? Because good things are coming. Good things are coming. They don't have it all figured out. They don't know what's going to be in the boxes, but they know good things are coming, and they love Christmas Eve. They love Christmas Eve. It's so exciting, but they don't want Christmas Eve to go on forever. They want to get to Christmas Day because that's when the good stuff's happening. Now, if children can be that excited about presents that they'll probably be bored of within a month, just saying, okay? How much more excited should we be that we are going to be with the Lord in his glory, in fullness of joy and pleasure that will only rise and increase over the hundreds and thousands and millions of years that we see him? How much more excited should we be today? Paul had faith. So Paul was excited, and his faith caused him to be overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ at the cross, overwhelmed by the fear of the Lord as he contemplated the judgment seat, overwhelmed with excitement as he considered heaven itself, all because Paul had faith, 
and faith produces a passion to please the Lord. I want to grow in my passion to please the Lord. Do you? Amen. Well, here's what we must do. We must have faith. We must have a faith that looks back to the cross and believes, not just once, but constantly. We must have a faith that looks ahead to the judgment seat and believes, not just once, but constantly. We must have a faith that looks ahead to heaven and believes not just once, but constantly. Because the more we believe who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has said and expecting him to keep his promises, the more we will love and treasure him. And the more we love and treasure him, the more we will desire to please him. Faith. Faith produces passion to please the Lord. I must have faith. But is faith the whole thing? Is, is passion all that we need? Is passion all that we need? The saints in Hebrews chapter 11, did they just have passion? Is that all that they had? Or, or, or is something still missing here? Well, that leads us to our second point. You can jot this down. Faith produces power to please the Lord. I must have faith. Faith produces power to please the Lord. I must have faith. See, faith doesn't just produce passion to please the Lord. Faith also produces the power that is necessary to live that passion out. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 5.9 one more time. So again, Paul said, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Now by saying that, Paul is not saying that he's on some works-based salvation project. He's not like, here's our plan, we're going to do a bunch of good works, and then God will be pleased with who we are. Because God will never be pleased with who we are because of our works. God will only be pleased with who we are if we've placed our faith in his Son, And if you are here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've been washed clean by his blood and if his righteousness has been credited to your account, then God is fully pleased with who you are in Jesus Christ right now. Receive this. There's nothing you can do about it. He's fully pleased with who you are in Jesus Christ right now and there's nothing that you can do about it. Praise the Lord. But here's another question, a different one. Is he pleased with what we do? Because yes, he is pleased with who we are in Jesus Christ. If you place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, if you've repented, then he is fully pleased with who you are. He delights in you. But is he pleased with what you do? Is he pleased with what I do? Is he pleased with what we do? Because the truth is is that God can either be pleased with what we do or he can be grieved by what we do. Think about this. We can actually give God pleasure or inflict sorrow upon him by how we choose to live our lives today. You can give God joy and delight and pleasure today.
today by how you choose to live your life today. How awesome is that? You can give God pleasure. We can give God pleasure. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the greatest joy of a Christian is giving joy to Christ. The greatest joy of a Christian is giving joy to Christ. Because as we live to give God joy, here's what happens. Our joy in him begins to fill up. So how do we give God joy with what we do? Should we just leave here and then just go and do a bunch of good works and then will God be pleased with what we do? Well, not so fast. Because God is only pleased with a certain kind of good works. Not all good works. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Apart from faith, it's impossible, impossible, impossible to please God. If our works are flowing from faith, coming to Jesus and believing who he is and what he has done and what he has said and expecting him to keep his promises, then God is pleased with those works. Those are like a fragrant aroma of worship to God. But what if our works are not flowing from faith? We'll have a look at Romans chapter 14. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is one of those verses in the Bible that is like a 20-ton weight. Because it defines sin no longer as a list of do's and don'ts. Sin is whatever does not proceed from faith. And so if our works are proceeding from faith, then they are pleasing to God. If our works are not proceeding from faith, then they are not pleasing to God. Now consider this. Consider you are the owner of a Formula One racing team. Okay? You've got your own Formula One racing team, and so you've invested a lot in this car. This car is sweet. It's the biggest race of the year. You are excited. You can't wait to see what's going to happen, and you look out on the track, and all the other cars are all lined up at the starting line, and your car's still here because you can't find your driver. Where is he? Where is he? And you see him, and he's jogging. He's jogging. You're like, I've never seen him jog before. That's kind of weird. And he jogs, he jogs right past the car. You're thinking, what are you doing? And he, he jogs right past you, and he says, I'm totally going to win this race today. Check out my new running shoes. And he jogs out onto the track, and he lines himself up with the Formula One cars. As the race team owner, you would not be pleased. You're thinking, what are you doing? I've made every provision for you to be in the race with the car, not with your running shoes. Likewise, likewise, the person of faith does not receive a command from God and then say, don't worry, God, I got my running shoes on. I don't need your strength. I don't need your power. I got this in my own strength. That's not faith. That's self-sufficiency. God is not pleased by self-sufficiency. God is pleased by faith. Faith honors him. Dependence honors him. Dependence glorifies him. Have a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. 
Whoever serves, that's all of us, right? Whoever serves, whoever serves, serve by the strength that God supplies. Why? Well, so that in, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Serve in the strength that God supplies. When we serve in the strength that God supplies, then who gets the glory? He does. He does. We, we need to serve in the strength that God supplies. And we serve in the strength that God supplies by faith. By faith. By faith. That's where the power is. It's faith. Faith produces power to please the Lord. We need power. Consider for a moment the golden rule. The golden rule found in Matthew chapter 7. Where Jesus said, he said, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. In other words, in other words, go and love people in the same way that you would want to be loved if roles were reversed. Love people in the same way that you would want to be loved if roles were reversed. And so if you did not know Jesus Christ, you would want someone to come and tell you about Jesus Christ. If you were hungry, you would want someone to bring you food. If you were thirsty, you would want someone to come and bring you a drink. If you were being oppressed somehow, you would want someone to come and rescue you. Love people in the same way that you would want to be loved if roles were reversed. Now, as we sit under the weight of that command, and we really consider what God is commanding us to do, and we really think about it, the only logical response is to say, I can't do it. I can't do that. I can't love people the way that, that I would want to be loved if roles were reversed. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power. I can't do it. To which God says, exactly. Finally, Nathan, you're getting it. You need my strength. You need my power to do this because apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. And God delights in giving us the power to obey him by faith, by faith, as we expect him to keep his promises like, like Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10, a promise wrapped in promises. Isaiah 41.10, as we seek to obey the Lord, he says this. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? For I am with you. That's the reason. Don't be afraid. God says, I am with you. Be not dismayed. That means don't be anxious. Don't anxiously look about. Why? Why? For I am your God. Listen to these promises. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What is God promising here? He's promising power. Power. The all-powerful, sovereign creator of the universe says, as we seek to obey him, he says, I will strengthen you. He says, I will help you. I will hold you up as you seek to step out by faith and obey me. And so how then do we walk in the power of a promise like that in our lives? How do we walk by faith? 
Well, I'd like to introduce you to an acronym. It's a weird kind of acronym. This is what it's called. It's called WAPTAT, okay? WAPTAT. And this is an acronym written by John Piper a long time ago as he, as he was seeking to illustrate how to walk by faith. I commend this to you. I, I, I invite you to write this down. I want to grow in this. I desperately want to grow in this. This is one of the main things that we talk about in biblical counseling, walking by faith. I commend this to you. W. W is, what is God commanding me to do? In any situation that we find ourselves in, we can ask that question. What is God commanding me to do from his word? And there will be times when God is commanding us to do specific things like pay taxes. But if I'm wondering, what does God want me to do right now? The golden rule is a great place to start. He wants us to serve. He wants us to love. He wants us to care. What is God commanding me to do right now? And then A, A, admit I can't do it. Just admit it. Just admit it. We need to humble ourselves and just admit it. I can't do it. I don't have the power to do what God is calling me to do on my own. There's so much freedom in just admitting it. What is God commanding me to do? Admit that I can't do it on my own. So what do we do next? P, we pray. We pray. We pray. That's what weak and needy people do. They pray. We pray and we ask God for the help that we need. God is commanding us to do some things. God, we say, I can't do it. I give up. I can't do it. Oh, God, would you come now and please help me to do this thing that I can't do on my own? And then T, trust in a, notice, a promise where God says, yes, I will help you. I will. Notice it's a promise that we're trusting in, not a kind of a vague notion that I think somewhere in the Bible God said that he might help me, and so I'm going to place my faith in a vague notion. No, no. We want a, we want a chapter and a verse, a promise from God where he says, I will do it. I will help you. Like Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. How awesome is that? Or, or the promise of reward, 1 Corinthians 3. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. What is God commanding me to do from his word? Submit I can't do it. I pray, ask God for help. Place our, our, our trust in a promise, a promise, a tangible promise we can put under our feet and put our full weight down on. God's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. As we step out, he's going to do it. And then we, A, we act. We act by faith. We actually do it. We go and do the hard thing, but, but it's not us. It's the grace of God within us. It's the Holy Spirit empowering us as we trust in his promises. And then T, T, we thank him for his grace. We thank him for his grace. Wapsat, again, I so desperately want to grow in this because it's faith. It's faith that produces power to please the Lord. I must have faith. I must have faith. Coming to Jesus, believing who he is, 
what he has done, what he has said, expecting him to keep his promises. Faith. So maybe you're thinking, well, is there somewhere in the Bible where we can actually see people living this out? Well, so glad you asked, because there is. And we're going to go there uh, in a minute. That leads us to our third point, which is this. Faith produces passion and power to go outside the camp. I must have faith. Faith produces passion and power to go outside the camp. I must have faith. Well, please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith or the hall of fame, so to speak, of people, these saints who are living out radically obedient lives. Again, it's a place like no other. Hebrews chapter 11, a place like no other where these saints are so focused on living to please the Lord. And it would be great to be able to go through all these examples. I commend that to you to read through Hebrews chapter 11, but we don't have time. We have time to look at one example. So we're going to look at the example of Moses. Moses, have a look at verse 24. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. Hebrews 11, verse 24. Still hear pages turning. Are we there? Okay, here we go. By faith, notice, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So if you're not familiar with the story of Moses, he was plucked out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter, adopted, so to speak, by Pharaoh's daughter into the royalty of Egypt. He grew up for 40 years in the palace of Pharaoh, the grandson of Pharaoh. And Jewish tradition suggests that Moses may have even been in line to be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. We don't know. We don't know for sure. But we know this, that at age 40, he walked away from all of it. And Lord, help us to feel the weight of this. He walked away from everything that his flesh craved. He had it all. He had everything that his flesh craved. He had all the money, all the power, all the status, all the treasure, every sinful indulgence his flesh could want. He had it. He had it all. But then by faith, he walks away from all of it. And not only that, this doesn't walk away from all of it into nothing. He walks away from all of it and trades it for suffering. He trades it for suffering. Look at verse 25. Choosing, rather, to be mistreated with the people of God. And verse 26 tells us that, that this suffering is called the reproach of Christ. In other words, suffering for the Messiah. Suffering for Jesus' sake. And he counted the suffering, the suffering itself, 
as greater treasure than all the treasure of Egypt. Suffering was greater wealth to him than all the treasures of Egypt. That makes no sense until you get to the end of verse 26. For he was looking to the reward. He was believing a promise. See, Moses was no fool. Moses measured the the temporal treasures that he could experience in this life for maybe the, what, next 80 years or so? Versus, on this side of the scale, the eternal reward of God. And he made his choice by faith. By faith. So what is this reward that Moses and Paul Look to, and that we are being called to look to today, right now. What is this reward that is so great that it fueled so much radical obedience throughout the whole Bible? We see Moses exchanging all the treasures of Egypt for suffering. What is this reward? Well, here it is. This is the reward. It's Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the reward. What other reward do you need if you've got Jesus Christ himself? Could anything be better than being in the presence and glory of Jesus? And the answer is yes. One thing. There is one thing that is better than being in the presence and glory of Jesus, and here it is. It's being in the presence and glory of Jesus and having him address you personally and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The only thing better than being in the presence and glory of Jesus is to be in the presence and glory of Jesus and to know that you pleased him and to hear him say to you, well done. What would that feel like? What would it feel like to hear the one who loves you more than anyone, the one who set his love upon you from before the creation, say to you, well done? What would it feel like to hear the one who died on the cross to make payment for your sins say to you, well done? What would it feel like to hear the one who is seated on the highest throne, worshipped and adored by countless angels, address you personally and say to you, well done? What would it feel like for the one who burns brighter than 10,000 suns to address you personally and say to you, well done, well done? What would that feel like? Well, as our hearts are steeped in that question, let's ask ourselves another question. What is God calling us to do by faith that he might say, well done? Well, have a look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. And we'll close here. Hebrews 13, 12. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. God is calling us this morning to go outside the camp. To go outside the camp of religion. To go outside the camp of believing that somehow we can do a bunch of good works and God will be pleased with who we are. God will never be pleased with who we are because of our good works. God will only be pleased with who we are if we've placed our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning and you have not placed your faith in the Son of God for the forgiveness of sins, then he's calling to you right now. Right now. Right now, he's calling to you. He's saying, come to me. Have your sins forgiven. Be cleansed. Know me. God is calling us out of the camp of religion forever. He's calling us outside the camp of self-sufficiency outside the camp of thinking that somehow in our own strength we can do works that please God. He's calling us out of that camp forever. God is calling us outside the camp of living to be comfortable. He's calling us outside the camp of indifference. He's calling us outside the camp of apathy. He's calling us outside the camp of not loving people as we ought to. And you need to know that I'm preaching this to myself right now. God has been revealing in me such selfishness, not caring for people as I ought to. And he's calling me to more. He's calling us to more, more love, more life, more freedom, more joy. He's calling us to himself. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Jesus is outside the camp, waiting. Jesus is waiting outside the camp in the hard place, in the difficult place, waiting to supply all the power and the grace and the strength we need to share the good news with boldness and to love people in Jesus' name. He's waiting for us outside the camp to provide all we need as we move toward people, as we move toward people in our own families in Jesus' name, as we move toward people in our workplaces as we move toward people in Oakville and in Burlington, as we move toward people in other cities like Hamilton. Did you know that we just entered into a partnership with a ministry in Hamilton called Helping Hands Street Mission? We have the opportunity to go into Hamilton and to love people in Jesus' name and to share the gospel with people And maybe that's something that interests you. If that does interest you, you can sign up right on our website. God is calling us to move toward people. So what does it look like for you? What does it look like for me to go outside the camp of religion and self-sufficiency and living to be comfortable and indifference and apathy and not loving people as we ought to? What does that look like for you personally? Well, know this, 
there is absolutely no way we will even want to do this. There is no way that we can do this apart from faith. Coming to Jesus, believing who he is, what he has done, what he has said, and what he has promised. And so many of you, so many of you are doing this right now. So many of you are faithfully going outside the camp and it's been hard. But the blessing, the blessing you have experienced, the profound joy in your fellowship with Jesus outside the camp, the profound joy you've experienced in walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, the profound joy you know in, in, in the reality that you are bringing joy to Jesus Christ, and no matter how hard this is, knowing he is worth it, he is worth it, he is worth it, because you're believing the truth of verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. There's a city coming. This is our hope. There's a city coming. And because we long to hear from the king of that city, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us go to him now outside the camp. And if necessary, bear reproach, believing that Jesus Christ is worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. The power to overcome our fears of going outside the camp is this. He's worth it. He's worth it. The power to take risks to go outside the camp is found in this. He is worth it. The power to overcome indifference in our lives and greed is found in this. He is worth it. He is worth it. Believing he is worth it. This is the path of joy and faith and freedom and radical obedience in our lives. Because faith produces passion to please the Lord. And faith produces power to please the Lord. And faith produces passion and power to go outside the camp into the joy and freedom of living to please the Lord. And having our joy filled up as we live to give him joy. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you right now for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who suffered more than we will ever know. who loves us more than we will ever know, who is a greater treasure than we can ever imagine right now. And God, you are calling each one of us to greater freedom and greater joy in you by calling us to live a life that pleases you by faith. You're calling us to walk by faith and to go outside the camp. Oh, Lord, would you speak to each heart here? Would you instruct each heart here in the way that we should go, believing with all our hearts that you are worth it. You are worth it. You are worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.